Good morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us. Uh, we are continuing in heaven today, but I was uh, reminded as I was preparing this of, of my own growing up. And when I was a kid, one of my favorite things, and I have three sisters, our favorite thing was movie night, mostly on a Friday night. But back then, movie night meant we drove to the video store and we walked up and down the aisles looking at the VHS jackets, right? And pulling them off and looking at the picture and reading it. And then all of us fighting over which one we wanted to watch. And then finally, mom and dad settling it by picking one. And then we'd take it up to the front. I don't know if you remember this. Take it up to the front, give it to them. They'd look up our account and be like, you owe 10 bucks from late fees. And we're like, oh, that was, yeah. Pay the late fees. They open the drawer. They pull out the VHS. They put the jacket in there. And then you go home. And you watch the movie. It's like a, you know, two hours to get the movie, then an hour and a half to watch the movie. Things are different now. So now we get to sit on the couch and flip through Voodoo is kind of our place of choice, flip through the movies. The difference is now we can push a button and watch a preview. So we'll see, oh, this looks good. Jumanji, well, what's that about? You know, watch the preview. Oh, cool. Um, and then we can, we can decide this is what we want together. We can vote on it. And this is one of the ways I have convinced the kids to watch my movie more than once is the previews. Now, we're talking about heaven. You know, we're in this heaven series. What if we could get a preview of heaven? Because a lot of us, if we're honest, have different views of what heaven is going to be like. We're going to be on a cloud, strumming a harp, eternal church service. People have these different ideas based on media, upbringing, movies, whatever, of what heaven's going to be like. What if we could have a preview? Well, somebody did get a preview. His name was John. So turn to Revelation. Revelation 21. If you need a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep it. Page 1,143 is where we're going to be. Where we're going to be. 1,143. And as you turn to Revelation 21, just some couple things about Revelation. So the book of Revelation is written really by God, by Jesus, but given to the Apostle John. This was written most likely at the end of the first century, late 80s, maybe even the 90s. Uh, John, at this point, is the last apostle still alive. All the others have been murdered, uh, some beheaded, some stabbed with a sword, some crucified upside down. You know, the, the traditions tell us how they were, different ones were killed. He's the last one left, and instead of of martyring John, they exiled him to an island called Patmos. And so, so John is on this island. He's away from his congregation. He had been the pastor in Ephesus for years. Now he's there. And Jesus gives him a vision and says, I want you to write down the things that I'm going to show you. Now, here's some things about Revelation. It's not written to you. It's not written to me. It's written to seven churches in Asia at the end of the first century. Now, it's written for us. We can read it and learn it, but it's not written to us. A lot of times people open up Revelation and, and look around today and go, oh, this is, you know, look around and try and figure out what's happening. That's in general not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book of Revelation was to give the church in that day and passed on to the church in our day hope and confidence that we're going to be going through trials and, and this picture of kind of this cosmic battle between God and his angels and, and Satan and, and his demons, which is a real battle and a battle here. And the point is, we win and so endure. So at the beginning of Revelation, uh, he writes to the seven churches in Asia, a little clip to each one. And to each one, he says, 
Those who stay the course, those who conquer will receive the reward. Those who conquer, the point is to give us hope. Life is going to be hard. We're going to have spiritual battles, but last to the end, it's worth it. And so different people are going to differ on what Revelation is saying, and mainly in three ways. So the book of Revelation is mostly prophecy, and three different views. It all happened in the past. Some will read it and say, oh, that's, that all was completed really within a few years of, of when it was written. Some will say it's all happening through the whole church age until Jesus comes back. And the third is it's all future. None of this has happened yet. This is all going to happen during a seven-year tribulation period. That's when it's going to happen. Those three disagree, and they disagree because of looking at the imagery and some of that. So uh, being prophecy, a lot of what's written in Revelation is imagery. It's a picture that means something else. And some of those, we can have a good idea of what they mean based on historical context. Some aren't super clear. You know, there's a locust that comes and is biting, and people have looked at that and go, oh, that's helicopters. Probably not. They didn't know about helicopters in the first century. You know, so, so there's some imagery of, of things that are happening. Now, again, people disagree, and good people who know the Bible and, and have good theology can disagree on a lot of that stuff. But where we're looking, Revelation 21, is where all of those kind of converge and pretty much agree that this is future. This is the end of the age. After those things that people fight about that are totally secondary and not that important, Jesus returns, and then eternity happens. This passage, Revelation 21 and 22, is talking about that time. And so we can be pretty confident on the imagery here. We can be pretty confident on what's being shared here to give us hope, and again, the encouragement, it comes up again, to, uh, to stay the course, to make it. It's going to be hard, but stay the course. So, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8 to begin with. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So here is a picture of what? New heaven and new earth. New heaven and new earth. So if you're a note taker, this is in your notes. Jesus' followers will spend eternity on a new earth. This is interesting because a lot of us have grown up with this picture of 
We're in the clouds, floating around, a spiritual existence. Heaven is a state of mind or something like that. Here, it's a new heaven and a new earth. And this word new does not mean brand new. This, this word new actually means renewed or remade. It means refreshed. It, it's a picture of restoring something to its original context. So this gives us an idea of the thrust of Scripture. And as we understand what the Bible is teaching from start to finish, we get a good idea of what he's saying here. So I drew this during the first service, and afterwards somebody came up and said, can I draw it better? So you're getting the updated better version. All right, so this is a, I really like this picture. This, it's a timeline, but in kind of a different way. So timeline, beginning. If you read in your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, that's before the fall, before sin. You see Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They're naked and they're not ashamed. Uh, they're eating of, of the fruit. They're gardening. They're hanging out. They're talking to God. That's this time. Uh, a, a word that describes this would be the Hebrew word shalom, uh, which means peace. But it's a cool word because it, it, it's not just peace. It's completeness. It's like relationships are all good. That's what's here. So they're on a physical earth, they're here, they're enjoying the tree of life, they're enjoying a river with God right here. Now, this line, you know, it's kind of weird to have a timeline that's shaped like this, but this line coming along right here, this line here is the fall. So when Adam and Eve sinned, something happened, something broke, and all of earth changed. Uh, now, every man and every woman, every boy and girl born is born into sin because of Adam and Eve and because of our parents. And so something happened here. If you remember, it's the curse, right? Woman would have, have pain in childbirth. Uh, man would have turmoil with the ground that from the sweat of his brow, he, he, would, he would produce fruit. So that's when like goat heads and thorns, those things that pop your tires. And as I've said before, that's when cats probably came in, um, depending on what your view of cats. Um, so, so, but all of earth changed. We were broken but the earth was created too. But as you look at the thrust of the Bible, it all then points to here. If you remember, right after sin, during the curse, God promises, he says, and by the way, woman and serpent, serpent, the woman is going to have an heir. His name is Jesus. I mean, we didn't get his name in Genesis. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Satan bruised Jesus' heel on the cross when he died. Jesus crushed Satan's head when he rose from the dead. So Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of all creation. I mean, so right here, broken, something had to be done with sin. If you remember, Adam and Eve were told, if you eat of the tree, you'll die. Meaning physical death, which we all experience, but also spiritual death. That's why Jesus, the God-man, the perfect one, died on the cross to fix what we did here. Now, we're in this time period where we're growing in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, but we're still in these bodies that struggle with sin until Jesus' return. So when Jesus returns, we have a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we can disagree all we want on what happens like right in here. Is there a rapture here and then a tribulation and then a millennium? And all? Good people who believe the Bible disagree on that, but, but all pretty much agree that after whatever that looks like, New heaven and new earth, and that's what we see here. And so this new heaven and new earth is much like the first earth, the first heaven and earth. And so the thrust of Scripture of what Jesus did was to complete it, not to get rid of it. Oh, you guys messed it up. I'm done. Jesus wins, right? If God has to throw all this out and change everything, did Satan win? No, God wins. He knew what he was going to do. He wasn't surprised when we sinned, right? <laughs> 
He knew what he was going to do before he created. He knew he was going to come. That's why Jesus is the center of all creation, of all time. I, I mean, what year is it? 2021? Where do we get that number? It's based on Jesus' birth. You know, and is it accurate? It is probably within two to five years. Um, but everybody on earth now gauges time based on Jesus' birth. So he's right. This is in, uh, or this will be on the screen. God originally created earth and heaven to be man's permanent home. But sin and death entered the world and transformed it to a place of rebellion and alienation. In Genesis 1, 31, God looks at what he created. He says, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. God created good, and he's going to recreate it good. Is it going to be exactly like this? No, there's definitely some differences. There's a lot of mystery, but there are some things we do know. But right now, we're in this time where earth is affected. All of creation is affected. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Creation, the earth, earthquakes, volcanoes, wolves eating sheep. I, I mean, all these things messed up. The earth is groaning. It is uh, futility. That word futility means frailty instability, vanity, emptiness, and those are the things that God wants to fix. Now, remember last week, we talked about heaven, and in Scripture, the word heaven is used three ways. The sky where the birds fly, uh, outside of that where the stars and the planets are, and the third is heaven, the place where God dwells. So how could this be a new heaven and a new earth? The place where God dwells unites with the place where we dwell. So this, this new, and again, that new typically means renewed, remade. Is it possible this earth is done away with and he makes another one? Absolutely possible. Is it possible he cleanses this one up and, and redoes it with new, that's possible too. Either way could happen. But it's a combining of where God dwells and where we dwell together. New heaven, new earth, one place, not two separate places as they are right now. So in your notes, the new heaven and the new earth is a combination of a perfected earth and God's presence. So with this big picture in mind, what won't be there? What won't be there? That's the topic we're looking at today. And next week, we're going to look at what will be there. We'll look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's the first thing. There's no more sea. Now, does that mean there's no oceans? Pretty much every interpreter would say that's not what it means, that it doesn't mean there's no oceans. So if you like to surf, you'll probably get to surf on the, the new heaven, new earth. The ideal idea of the sea, again, most of Revelation is symbolic. Now, is some of it real and symbolic? Yeah, I mean, God does that all the time. But here, this, the sea is a place of turmoil, of trouble. Elsewhere in Revelation, the enemies come out of the sea. And so this idea of the sea is that there will be no more turmoil, uh, no more trouble, turmoil, danger, or rebellion. That, that the sea is, is no more. That's, those pieces will be gone. But some have made another idea. Now that's absolutely true because we see that elsewhere coming out throughout Scripture. But again, remember John's context. He's on an island. 
He's separated from, from the church he administered to. Um, all of his best friends had been martyred for their faith. He's kind of alone. So the first thing when he sees the, this new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, the first thing he says is, there's no sea. He's probably standing on the shoreline looking at a sea kind of alone. Now, again, is this the main thrust of what Jesus wanted us to see in this? Maybe, maybe not, but it's also true that all loneliness and isolation will be gone in heaven, where we will live in perfect community with God and his people. So again, is that what's meant exactly right there? Maybe, but we see through the thrust of the rest of scripture, this is absolutely true. Uh, you know, COVID has shown us the danger of isolation, right? The danger of, of being separated. But in eternity, we will have perfect community with one another and with God. In the book of First Thessalonians, Paul is writing to this church and this church had a belief in Jesus' return and the resurrection. And they were worried because some of their friends and family had died. And they're like, oh, Jesus, we thought you were going to come back. Now they're dead. What's the deal? And so Paul writes them this to give hope. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is dead. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, by the way, that's key right there. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So in that, he's giving them hope. Those who have died are going to rise again. And, and you're not going to beat them to heaven, right? They're going to rise first, get these new bodies, and we will be caught up. That word caught up, that's where we get the word rapture. You've heard rapture before. That word caught up, translated, the Latin is rapture. So is the rapture true? Yes. When does it fall? We can disagree on that all we want. But in the end, when Jesus returns, those who are still alive will be caught up, will receive new bodies, and be united with the, our family and friends who have died in Christ. And together we will be with the Lord, always be with the Lord is what it says, forever. Remember last week, Jesus says, where I'm going to prepare a place, meaning he's going to the cross, that where I am there, you may be also. I mean, we look at creation, we were made to glorify God in relationship forever. In the end, we're going to have a perfect relationship with God and one another forever on a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if we're honest and we hear that, we go, okay, the Bible's clear, believers are there, what about those people who have died who do not belong to him? Because we see here, unbelievers will not be there. In that First Thessalonians passage, it says, since we believe. And here in Revelation 21, you look at verse 8. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The heresy all over the American church is this idea of universalism that everybody will someday be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches very clearly we have one chance and it's in this life to choose Christ. 
and after that comes judgment. And so here, the unbelievers will not be there. Now, it lists sin. And if you read that, you might be like, duh, I've lied. Or I've been sexually immoral. Is, is that me? Not if you're in Christ. Because Jesus covered our sin. So the wrath of God that demands death was satisfied in Jesus. But some will reject that. Say, I, I don't want Jesus' forgiveness. His death was good enough for them. But if they reject it, they have to be judged because God is just. And so, unbelievers will not be there. But if we're honest about that, isn't there a piece of us that's like, I don't like that. I have, I have family members, I have friends that have died that didn't know the Lord, and they won't be there, and it's supposed to be this perfect place. I, I don't quite get it. Well, in Isaiah 65, God inspires Isaiah to write this. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So new heaven and new earth, by the way, it appears in Isaiah, it appears in Ezekiel, it appears in Peter writes about it. It's not new in Revelation. This has been an idea of God's people that they understood. But they won't be remembered. Does that mean we have amnesia? Some argue that, that those pieces are just wiped out of our memory. I don't think so. Because who, who are we? We're made up of our memories. I think rather we will have right perspective. Right? We're there. We're going to remember our sin. In fact, in light of God's glory that we'll have there, I think our sin will be even more detestable and ugly, which will elevate God's grace even more. And so our understanding of that in perspective will fill us with even greater joy, right? Greater thankfulness. And so with perspective, these things won't, won't come to mind. We won't be dwelling on that. Because we also see there will no longer be death, mourning, or pain. That's verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. These things are not symbolic. These are straightforward. These things won't be there. We won't be suffering. We won't be in pain. God is recreating creation, restoring it to what it should be. Everything that was good here, and then we broke it, renewed here to be good again. And what else won't be there? Look at 21. We're going to skip some. You can read through this chapter this week because we're going to look at it again next week. But verse 22, speaking of the new Jerusalem that he sees, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple. Now, we've, we haven't had a temple, right? Uh, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And so since then, for us, whatever, what's that mean? Well, the temple during the, the time of Israel was the place where God would meet with his people. It was where God had a unique presence in the Holy of Holies. And so the temple symbolically was God among his people. Well, there will be no temple because we will be with God. We will be face to face. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God, right? After they sinned, God comes walking through the garden. They're like, now ah, we're naked. And they hid. That's the way it was. In the end, we're going to be walking with God. We're going to be with him, direct presence. Therefore, no temple. Now, for some of us, again, if we're being honest, that might not sound like a lot of fun. Well, God is just like this goody-two-shoes, pastor-in-a-sweater-vest type person, not wanting to have any fun. That, I wrestled with that growing up, right? I like to do fun things, 
but in general, religious churchy people don't like to do fun things. I'm like, well, that, what's eternity going to be like then? It's going to be horrible. Uh, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis was a great theologian, and these are kids' books, but if you haven't read them, you should read them. And in these books, Aslan is a lion, and Aslan represents you know, Jesus and, and God in the books. But repeatedly throughout the books, uh, it said, Aslan is no tame lion. You know, C.S. Lewis, this great Christian theologian, is trying to get kids to understand God is not tame. God isn't going to fit into our box. You know, it's not like you're going to go up and pet this lion. You know, Jesus is not tame. He is adventurous. He is exciting. He, he is rough. He is beautiful. He is wise. He is gentle. He is all these things. And so he will be exciting. Life will be good in Psalm 1611. David writes about God. He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can we wrap our minds around that perfectly? We don't. There's still a lot of mystery in that. But it's going to be excellent. Again, what were we made for? We were made to glorify God in relationship forever. That's what we're going to get to do. We're going to be like that puzzle piece that fits perfectly. It's going to finally be just right. There's always been something missing. It's going to be just right. And then, again, verse 25 to 27, we see what won't be there. It says, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What won't be there? It says, uh, there will be no night. Uh, the, the gates will never be shut. What's that imagery? When do you lock your doors? At night. Unless you're really paranoid, then you lock them in the day too. But, but in general, it's night when things are dangerous. It's night when the cities would close their gates so robbers and, and enemies wouldn't come in and wolves and whatever. Here it's saying there's no danger. There will no longer be danger or evil. We won't be at risk. We'll be at peace. Does it mean there will be no darkness, no night? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think there will still, I mean, I like night. I like the sound of crickets. I like, we don't have lightning bugs, but if you've ever seen them, they're really cool. Yeah, I, so there's something kind of cool about night. Here, the imagery, again, there's no longer be danger or evil. And also we see there, nothing unclean. You see that? Nothing unclean. Anybody here struggle with sin? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Last service, too, some hands going up. I do. I do, I struggle with, with the darkness inside, the peace of me. God, I see, I want to go your way perfectly and then tempted by this stuff over here and we have this wrestle. Paul describes it really well in Romans. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This struggle is part of who we are when we still have these bodies. We desire God, but we also have sin that indwells us. Now, we have victory over sin, so we get to avoid hell. We have the power to gain more victory over sin, but it's going to be a struggle forever until Jesus returns or until we go to be with him. And that's exciting as we look at this. That struggle will be gone. So this, this new Jerusalem, as you see, some... You read some commentaries, and it describes it. Oh, this new Jerusalem, it's going to be awesome. There's pearls that are as tall, and they get really specific. Will it be a real city? Maybe. 
But for sure, it's God's people. Look at verse uh, 21. It says, and I saw, oh, sorry, nope. And the 12 gates, there were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And other places you read, it talks about the jewels and these. Clearly, this is definitely God's people, because Jerusalem is called the bride, and the bride is God's people. And so this might be an actual city, but it's definitely God's people. And the imagery here is that we will be pure, right? Pure and beautiful. Gold. Pure gold like this. It's an idea, again, of purity, meaning all results of sin and the curse will be gone. All results of sin and the curse will be gone. Our last three verses, uh, chapter 22, 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship Him. The thrust of what God is doing is He's getting rid of the curse. For eternity, the curse is gone. All the things that, that make this life painful, that, that make it uncomfortable, all those will be gone, and this will be perfect. Do we know what it will be like exactly? No. I, you know, Jesus at one point says there's no marriage. Well, there was marriage here, but there's not marriage. So it's not perfectly the same. But yet, we will be carrying out our, our we're made in the image of God, we'll be carrying out that image in perfect relationship with him and with one another forever. He is restoring what we broke. Anthony Hokema writes it this way. He says, because of man's fall into sin, a curse was pronounced over this creation. God now sent his son into the world to redeem that creation from the results of sin. The work of Christ, therefore, is not just to save certain individuals, not even to save an innumerable throng of blood-bought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God has ushered in the new earth, until paradise lost has become paradise regained. Again, we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but we know enough, we know enough to see it's going to be a lot like what we see, but perfected. The curse is removed. So what won't be there? Everything that the curse has caused. And next week, we'll look at what will be there. But my final question is, are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? Is your faith in Jesus as Lord, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead for you? Because in this life is when we have to make that choice, which determines eternity forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for going to the cross. Thank you that you didn't, uh, you didn't want to save your life so much and then cast us into eternity apart from you, but rather you gave your life so that we could live. God, we believe, as we were singing before, we believe in the Trinity. We believe, Jesus, that you died for us. We believe in the resurrection, that in the end we will have new bodies and be with you on a new heaven and a new earth. And God, I thank you that there's a lot of mystery in it.
I do. We have to have faith. We have to trust in you. But I also thank you that you've given us enough of a preview that we can see it's a place we want to go. It's a place that we want to be for eternity with you and with one another, and it's going to be great. God, I pray for every heart in this room that we would honestly uh, look at you and look at your holiness and look at ourselves and ask the question, have we surrendered to you as Lord? And God, for those of us who have, I ask that you would fill us with hope, fill us with encouragement. God, that this life sold out for you is worth it. That those who endure will get to enjoy your presence forever. Those who conquer by making it till the end will enjoy you and your treasures forever. God, we love you. Be glorified now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.